0: Okay, this is a podcast that is a little beholden to the news cycle. This is about Trump and the Russia investigation. This is just a brief, by my podcast standards, one-hour tour of how a lawyer and former U.S. attorney, trained in the relevant areas, views the Trump presidency and the um, Mueller investigation. My guest today is Preet Bharara. Preet is, as I said, a former U.S. attorney. For the Southern District of New York from 2009 to 2017. He prosecuted cases involving terrorism, narcotics, arms trafficking, financial and healthcare fraud, cybercrime, public corruption, gang violence, organized crime, civil rights violations. He's been featured by Time Magazine as one of the 100 most influential people in the world. And in 2017, he joined the faculty of NYU Law School. And he has his own podcast, which is excellent titled, Stay Tuned with Preet. So, fair warning if you're sick of conversations about Trump and the Russia investigation, this is not the podcast for you, but otherwise it might well be. So now I give you Preet Bharara. I am here with Preet Barara. Preet, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me on. Let's just summarize your background because you you really have the perfect background for the conversation we're about to have. Please give us your your potted bio and just briefly touch on the kinds of areas you you have focused on in in the law. Wow, okay. So,
1: uh, we can take up the hour with this. I was I was born in 1960. No, so, I I was born in India, came to the United States. My father is a a proud Indian immigrant pediatrician and hoped for his sons to become doctors we disappointed him deeply. Neither my brother nor I became doctors. Ended up going to law school. After law school, I worked in private practice, although my, my goal and destination always was really the U.S. Attorney's Office from the time I took a trial practice class, trial advocacy class at, at Columbia. Um, but it took me a while to get into shape to go to the U.S. Attorney's Office. I applied, got in after about six years in private practice. And while I was a line prosecutor, I prosecuted all sorts of things, as you might imagine, in Manhattan. Narcotics cases, mob cases, Uh, ultimately, I focused more on um, uh, Russian organized crime, Chinese organized crime, uh, Italian, La Cosa Nostra. Did some terrorism cases, uh, not too many. Uh, Fraud cases, you name it, we did it. Then I spent four and a half years working as chief counsel to Senator Schumer on the Judiciary Committee, during which time we had multiple Supreme Court vacancies and I got to work on judicial confirmation process. And then uh, after Barack Obama became the president, upon the recommendation of the senator, I was nominated to be the U.S. attorney. And then I got to serve in that position for seven and a half years uh, where we did, again, (laughs) you name it, except I was overseeing the office instead of being a line person in that office. And, you know, what I'm proud of during that tenure is, is, you know, there are some offices I think that are known for focusing on one or two things. And I believe that we we didn't disproportionately focus on any one thing. Sometimes some of the stuff we did got disproportionate attention, like insider trading cases, but we were working mm-hmm. just as hard on, on cyber security threats, on uh, gang cases, on uh, securities fraud, on terrorism cases, on public corruption cases, also civil fraud cases. So I think we did a lot of things in a lot of different areas. If you want to talk about them, we can. And I served very uh, humbly and appreciatively in that position until. I was fired by Donald Trump last March.
0: Obviously, your expertise with Russia and Russian organized crime and financial crime is highly relevant to the conversation we'll have here. Say a little bit more about the firing. Was there some point of principle you were standing on in order to be fired? I seem to remember reading that you, all the U.S. attorneys under President Obama were told to resign and you refused. Is that right? Yeah, well, it's, it's, it's slightly more complicated than that. I had been expecting to leave the office when Donald Trump
1: got elected, because that's how it works. But usually, Mm -hmm. almost in every case, and some people get this wrong, after a period of transition. Um, You know, I got confirmed after Barack Obama became the president in August of 2009, and there was an orderly transition process. You know, people aren't just booted out. Even when Clinton got rid of the holdover U.S. attorneys, that was over a period of time with a built-in transition process. So in any event, I expected to leave a few months after the election but Donald Trump made the extraordinary move of uh, asking me to stay which is a little bit of a story through Senator Schumer and not only that invited me to to Trump Tower up to the 26th floor where I met first because Donald Trump was busy with Steve Bannon and Jared Kushner who kept me company until the president could come and meet and it was a it was a lovely meeting in which he was very complimentary of how I conducted myself in the position and th- how the office had done I made a little speech about independence and we went on our merry way. Him with him asking me to stay another term. So, fast forward several months. when out of the blue. The president called me for reasons that are still unclear. I thought it was an that was on March 9th of two thousand and seventeen. I thought, for various reasons, and after consultation with the attorney general's office, the chief of staff to Jeff Sessions, that it was inappropriate, not knowing the subject matter and knowing how it might look to the public. Mm-hmm. If there was a conversation you know on the side between a sitting president and a sitting U.S. attorney who had jurisdiction over various things, including uh, you know, uh, him, his associates, his businesses uh, and a lot of other interests, that unless we knew what it was about, it was the better course to not speak directly with the president, and 20 hours later I was asked to resign. Now, I don't know if they're connected. I don't know if they're not connected. And so well, when, that, when that happened, the first day so that was on a Friday, not to belabor the story. But, you know, I wasn't sure if they meant to include me. So at the beginning, I wasn't thinking to myself, I'm gonna be defiant and require being fired. Uh, I just wanted to know, you know, given some track record of incompetence and quick decision making on the part of people in the White House, if they had meant to do that. I mean, you know, there were two other people who were sitting with attorneys also, who I don't think they meant to ask for their resignations. That was Rod Rosenstein, who mm-hmm. was nominated to be the Deputy Attorney General, And Dana Benta, who was the acting attorney general at that time, I think, you know, given the haste with which it was done, I was just trying to make sure as an initial matter that it meant to include me. And then I consulted with folks in my office, uh, senior staff, and I've lived long enough to know that you don't know what the reasoning is behind certain things. I had in my mind no understanding or explanation as to what may have changed between the time that Donald Trump said, please stay, and orchestrated a fairly high profile meeting, even before he had named a secretary of defense before he had named a secretary of state i believe right and i just wanted the record to be clear you know for the future um that the person who had personally invited me to come meet with him shake my hand look me in the eye ask me for my phone numbers that it would be clear from the record that that person also wanted me gone and it wasn't just sort of some you know mass bureaucratic
0: shuffle uh and then once i was assured of that then i left okay so if someone has been asleep for the last 14 months or just arrived from mars i would like to have you walk us through what you think they should understand about our current situation i guess this is narrowly focused on the russia investigation and what seems to be our kind of the most plausible picture of what has happened there and what is happening to uncover more of the facts and the president's behavior through this whole time with respect to the investigation. Can you just start a kind of a, a narrative as to what has been going on and what, where we think we are now and where you think this is all going?
1: Sure. Um, so, so I think if the alien were, were, you know had a, had a deep understanding of what American history had been like, I think the alien would think to himself, herself, or itself, things seem a little bit different. You have a president of the United States Uh, who has a different background from anyone else who's been elected, which is not necessarily a terrible thing. A person, the first time in maybe forever, I can't remember if this is true, but with no political experience, no no public service experience, and no military experience of any kind, which is a first, which can be a good thing, which can be, you know, precedents were made to be broken, and the status quo is meant to be uh, disrupted, and that can be a tremendous thing. It's important in technology. It's important in science. It can be important in government as well, but you don't want to throw out the things that are good and the things that make, you know, the country strong and the institutions that got us to where we are. So I think, you know, if you're looking at it from the outside, you're thinking to yourself, how did we get to a point where a president is trashing the press, is calling one of the the great, I think, protectors of democracy and freedom, even though they get it wrong sometimes, the press is made up of human beings like any other institution is but calling the press the enemy of the state. Uh, we've fallen a little bit far, if that's you know the current s- state of affairs. How you have a president who uh, can't say a bad word about certain kinds of people, including authoritarians like Putin and Duterte and Erdogan, while at the same time, uh, if anyone in the United States you know, has the temerity to engage in some kind of protest that he doesn't agree with, he slams them by name, he punches down, he bullies people. Uh, he doesn't like how judges operate. You know, you, you get the sense if you're observing from the outside that thank, thank God the framers had certain structural protections in place. And, and the places where the constitution has structural protection, I think we're okay. Uh, you know, if the president doesn't like a judge's ruling, the most he can do at this point is holler about it, yell about it, vent about it, tweet about it, uh, or do all of those things. And the judge, you know, has in the federal system has life tenure and may not like it and may not like you know being named publicly and it may be difficult to get the hate mail but can just continue to do his or her duty under the constitution and that's because the framers made that possible i think the same is true with with the institution of the press you can complain about it you can call it fake news you can denigrate it you can undermine it um, but at the end of the day notwithstanding some silly talk about wanting to revamp the libel laws and expressing concern about the first amendment the first amendment is pretty much here to say as well where, where I worry about the state of affairs over the last 14 months is, is the president, where he has the ability not to you know, follow tradition, where there are no hard laws, there are no constitutional provisions. Uh, he can get away with a lot of things. And we have come to expect uh, presidents to behave a certain way, uh, to release their tax returns when they run for office so that there's transparency, you know, to divest their economic interests so there's no conflicts of interest. You know not not to surround himself with people who are not even able to get a security clearance after thirteen or fourteen months to have you know unpaid uh, around him his his daughter his son-in-law um, you know there's a whole variety of things that uh, are bad not because they are different necessarily from how prior presidents have done things but because they undermine I think people's faith in in democracy and undermine what I think makes us strong and when you talk about the particular the particulars of the Russian investigation which i don't have any personal knowledge of you know it's being conducted by bob muller and a team of people who i know personally to some degree uh, you know the idea that there has been meddling in the in the election by <clears throat> by the russians and the president doesn't seem to care doesn't seem to want to talk about it and more importantly doesn't seem to want to do anything about it in part because it maybe undermines in his mind the legitimacy of the last election uh, is, I, I think it's an abomination, and, and, it's, and it's not good for the country, and it, it puts in question the president's slogan that he loves to utter, which is very simplistic and could you know, could resonate if it were true and backed up by action, America first. So you know, that's sort of how I'm thinking about how things are going on.
0: You raise a few points here, which on their face should be astounding to people or to anyone who's thinking about this through an unbiased lens. Partisanship aside, it is astonishing to have a president who is attacking our bipartisan institutions from an apparently personally defensive and, quite frankly, often unhinged place. I and mean, maybe nihilistic, even, too. Yeah, so he's, t- he's attacking the press as the enemy of the people. He's attacking individuals on Twitter private citizens. He's singling out for abuse. He's attacking the Department of Justice, or the FBI, all of our intelligence agencies upon which he has to rely to get any information about what's actually going on in the world. And as you say, what he hasn't done is say a single negative word about dictators whose reputations precede them by now decades, someone like Putin. I mean, it's just, <laughs> yeah. there's no way to not criticize Putin as an autocrat if you're actually speaking about what's happening in the yeah. world. I
1: mean, he likes autocrats. I think, I, think he, I think he wishes he could be one. I mean, the, the question of some relevance is, you know, we, we, have, we were talking about the Constitution and the, and the checks and balances and the structure of, you know, the various branches of government, which are bulwarks against this kind of thing. But it's an interesting question to ask if Donald Trump had his druthers, right? And he doesn't. But if he had his druthers and he did not have limitation, is there something in his own mind, body, soul, intellect, moral compass that would prevent him from doing various things? In other words, if he had his druthers, would he put journalists in jail who didn't like if he had his druthers? Would he completely revamp the libel law to make him able to sue anyone who criticized him? If he had his druthers, you know, what kind of a police state would he think would be okay? If he had his druthers, how independent do you think he would allow the Justice Department to be? He's, you know, restrained and curtailed in that respect in a lot of ways. But, but I don't know if there has been a president, and people point to Nixon, but I don't, I don't really know, who, if given, you know, unrestricted authority, ability, power, uh, would be capable of doing what I believe is in Donald, Donald Trump's heart and mind to do. And and part of that is evidenced by, as we've been discussing, his apparent, you know, affection for not necessarily the people themselves, although maybe he has personal affection for Putin and others, but but he seems to be enamored of what they are able to do and how strong they are able to be, and how unchallenged yeah. and unchecked they can go about their business. And I think he loves that. And I think if he, if there's any way possible, he could be that way, he would. I, I think he, I think he is unpatriotic in the sense that. Uh, not only does he undermine the institutions, he doesn't have respect for them. And he wishes, and I don't hear people asking him this, like, you know, in this way, and I'm sure he would, you know, evade and deflect. But but I don't
0: think he has respect for the institutions that check the president because he doesn't want to be checked. As you say, it's even worse than that because he doesn't even care that the people he's praising, in this case, Putin, are adversaries (laughs) of the United States. We're dealing with a, in the main, a hostile foreign power that has targeted our democracy in ways that are now well established. Now, obviously, this is believed to be a a mere conspiracy theory by many of Trump's defenders. But the fact that there seems to be no doubt that Russia does this—not just to the United States, but to basically every democracy that it cares to pay attention to—and it's just amazing that, given all the evidence of their meddling and given the Continuous problem of cyber attacks that emanate not just from Russia, but other countries like North Korea and China. The fact that he has shown no willingness to get to the bottom of this and to defend us against our obvious adversaries and is rather joining the people who are claiming this is all a conspiracy theory, apart from the fact that it signals that he has something to hide, it is just a, a nearly treasonous. Level of unconcern as president. It's just Sam, Sam, I've never heard a defense of Look, I think treason is, is a word that's only reserved
1: for Democrats. who don't clap for him during the State of the, the, state of the Union. That's
0: right. Yeah, <laughs> so I, I realize it's a big word to even in this context to get but, a lawyer to sign but, off. But on. I think,
1: like, I think there there are a couple of other things going on. So I don't know if the reason that you know he's so um, supine on these issues relating to Russian meddling is because you know he has something to hide. If uh, you know, as some people love to speculate that Putin has, you know, a lovely file on him, and he's behold and, and Trump is beholden, beholden to Putin. But there's something else that's going on. Like we're, you know, w- without having to resort to conspiracy theory, we know something else about the president. I'm not trying to play armchair psychology. You know, he's he has a lot of power, and he's incredibly insecure. And the combination of tremendous power, which he sort of walked into accidentally, <clears throat> combined with tremendous insecurity. Uh, not only about sort of, you know, his wealth, uh, but about a lot of other things, including the legitimacy of having won the, you know, of of his election, victory, combines to create a dynamic in which anything relating to Russia and anything relating to the future, which is not a partisan issue, he doesn't like to talk about, he doesn't like to reflect on, he doesn't like to lead on, because it threatens to throw into the air again this question about what happened in 2016 and did he get elected on his own, or did he have aid from this other country? And I think his insecurity causes him to hate that so much that it blinds him to to the other responsibilities that he has as a president of the entire country, and someone who's supposed to be the guarantor
0: of free and fair elections for both parties. Yeah, although if it was just a matter of his insecurity and the perception of the legitimacy of the election, and there was no collusion or no way in which he was beholden to Russia, you know, for, you know, financial arrangements that predate his campaign by probably decades. I don't know why he wouldn't just go on offense and say the things you would expect an innocent person who was outraged by Russian meddling and Putin's own history as an autocrat would say. This is completely unacceptable that if there was any meddling, you know, obviously I don't think it it accounts for my, my win in the election, but it's It's completely unacceptable and we will get to the bottom of it. And Putin is is somebody who has to straighten out. He's not a Democrat. He kills journalists. This is all well established. And we have to deal with him, but he doesn't appear to be any friend of the United States. What would prevent him from saying those obviously sane things if he were just concerned about the public's perception? I don't disagree with you.
1: I think I think a lot I think multiple things can be going on at once. You know, we we often say when we're investigating cases and this can be said of the, of the White House and certain things that they were doing, you know, nefariousness and incompetence are not mutually exclusive. So yeah. insecurity yeah. and bad co- and misconduct are not mutually exclusive either. And in his case, at least the way we're talking about it, they both, you know, sort of suggest acting in the same direction, right? That they're not in conflict yeah. with each other. Well, as far as he's concerned, I think he likes the, the autocratic power those folks have. He may have something to hide because he's acting like it. And he also doesn't like the way it makes him feel because he's insecure. All, all those three factors lead to the same kind of conduct. And by the way, you know, it also doesn't necessarily explain, you know, his affection for and compliments of, uh, you know, these other strong-arm folks with whom we don't have the same antagonistic relationship with respect to the election, like Erdogan and like right. Duterte. I mean, Duterte in particular, given the kind of work that, that I have done and used to do, you know, the, the way that Duterte talks about Fighting the war against drugs and the extrajudicial killings, the extrajudicial killings that not only have happened, but that Duterte brags about um, and claims that he has personally—I think he's claimed—he's personally killed people, uh, or thrown people from helicopters and engaged in all sorts of violence. As, as a populist hero trying to eradicate drugs from that country, uh, you know I don't think Trump has specifically advocated any of those particular things, but he speaks in general terms about the great job that Duterte has done. And you know, I don't believe the Philippines meddled in our election. So, so there is this other thing going on. This, this, this effect. Yeah. For people who have that kind of power, because maybe he aspires to it. Right. Oh, and by the way, the, the other thing we haven't talked about, but going back to our alien coming from Mars, that I think um, imbues all of this with something terrible, separate and apart from the attacks on institutions, and you know, something he may be hiding and everything else. It, it, this is a person who does not believe in speaking the truth. In any context, and virtually at any moment, and yeah, and, and that 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 is something that, that is more dangerous than a lot of other things. You know, casting not just aspersions on people who he disagrees with, but casting doubt on all truth, um, and and li- and literally without compunction, tweeting out things that are demonstrably wrong and false on a regular basis, and then, you know, and then you're you're <clears throat> you're treated to this vision of tens of millions of people not caring about that and agreeing with him regardless and manufacturing counter theories and and, and counter conspiracy theories uh, that's in some people's minds i think the worst thing is that's going on because he, he has a lot of power and is using the bully pulpit in a particular way that no one has used it before but in favor of disbelief in anything you hear you know d- just because you saw it with your own eyes doesn't mean you have to believe it and people are starting to subscribe to that you know i had I have a podcast too. It's not as I've um, been around as long as yours, and I had Gary Kasparov yeah, on. No, it, it, it's it's
0: a great one. Yeah. Thank
1: you. Um, but you know Gary Kasparov was on, who's no you know friend of Putin's, and and he he said something interesting. You know the, the idea behind being a certain kind of autocrat like Putin and Trump seems to emulate some of this is not to say that this that this other person is always wrong. It's not to say that this other news outlet is always incorrect. Uh, and and not to have every single outlet, you know, uh, lionize you and say everything you do is is great. It's to to cause people to not know what is true and what is not true. It's to sow confusion about what the truth is. So if somebody says, you know, this person was fired for this reason, or somebody says, uh, you know, this ruling is okay or not okay, Donald Trump can cast enough doubt about it that people have to wonder are we getting the truth from anywhere i mean he he flips on a regular you know, there was a time when he said fox news was terrible because they weren't saying good things about him and then he says fox news is great there are times when he says you know the new york times is terrible the failing new york times then they say something positive and then he calls them up and he sits for an interview and he says that they're they're terrific he he cites sources that he hates when they support him uh, or support a proposition that he espouses and then he does the opposite and so it's it's kind of a confusing merry-go-round of truth, untruth, that uh, that upends people's understanding and, I think, confidence in in every outlet.
0: Yeah, well, that's where we are. We're, we're in this place where our epistemology has broken down and everyone is now siloed in their echo chamber and you have people who are taking Infowars as a legitimate organ of the news, apparently with a totally clear conscience, right? And And if... Even if they would bracket that with some question as to the veracity of everything they get there, they certainly would compare it favorably with any legitimate organ of of the news, whether it's the New York Times or The Economist or The Atlantic. And so that already is a is a fairly terrifying destabilization of our public conversation. It's one that we should remind people has been explicitly endorsed by the president. I mean, the president sat down with Alex Jones and Praised him as basically the you know the new um, Walter Cronkite. That that
1: kills me the most. I mean, one of the things that kills me the most in all this is that I don't know that there's a more odious outlet figure than Alex Jones. Who and every time there is a tragic massacre of of children, like we just saw this week when we're taping in Florida, you know, one's mind sometimes goes to Alex Jones, who put the families of people who suffered loss and death and grief, unbelievable in Sandy Hook. That 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 you can have a president of the United States say about that person, you're terrific and you're great, and sit down with him for an interview. And at the same time say that some other outlet like the New York Times, which you know, they make mistakes. Everyone makes mistakes I make mistakes. I'm sure you don't make any mistakes, but uh, we all make a few. And and to basically to his constituency suggest not only that they, that you can equate Alex Jones's disgusting reporting and nonsense and made-up garbage with the New York Times, but that one is, the first is superior to the second in some ways. And when people follow, you know, I, you know there, there's some, maybe this is a quaint thought, but, you know, when people have power, they have responsibility to, to something other than themselves, other than to their own self-aggrandizement. And Donald Trump has a lot of power because there are a lot of disaffected people um, who believe in him and, and hated the status quo and it is what it is he He has the ability to take them to bad places, and he doesn't need to do it. I mean, maybe he does need to do it to maintain you know the the standing that he has in the in the thirties as far as approval ratings go um, but it seems that he takes it farther than other politicians, even fairly odious politicians, have taken it
0: What do you make of the fact that? so few people seem to care about his lies? Because I, I would agree with you. I, I'm, I'm certainly one Don't of those people I care. you care? We care. <laughs> like, well, yeah, no, but like, but the fact that it doesn't cost him, I mean, how is it that someone like Paul Ryan can not repudiate this behavior? I mean, how is his political opportunism... I think you've answered. I think, I think that's what it is. I can answer yeah, my own question here, that the answer is... his poll results are dependent upon him passing this loyalty test. It, it really is a kind of prolonged loyalty test. If the the king is telling lies. how you know, However transparently false they are, you are signaling your loyalty by just falling into step behind them, or even publicly trying to make sense of the lies in a way that is supportive of them, They're basically acting like his deranged press secretary. It has the makings of a kind of personality cult. I, mean, I guess it's enforced not so much by love of the dear leader, but by a fear of, the, of, the, of your sinking poll results if you demur on anything. But it's just astonishing to see people who have real reputations and real careers and some semblance of probity in their lives or have, you know, heretofore had some semblance of, and yet they are covering for a kind of moral lunatic, certainly with respect to this variable, the variable of an assault on the truth, a sustained assault on the truth, I think it's not a coincidence that
1: the people who are saying things that, that sound like they're they're standing up to the president and standing up for principle uh, over party or country over party are the people who have decided we're not running again because to to choose to run for office and to remain viable, I guess you're supposed to um, engage in this calculation you're talking about and, you know, understand the nature and vagaries of political opportunism and decide, you know, if I go at the president now, then I won't be able to remain in office because he can he can turn on you know turn the big bazookas, political bazooka guns on me. And I think Paul Ryan does that calculation over and over again. Look, you got a person like Ted Cruz, senator from Texas, who separate and apart from political calculation, you would think if you just had some kind of self-respect and dignity yeah. as a human being and this, this odious person who you said is odious and who you ran against and who says basically to Ted Cruz, your wife is ugly
0: and your, tenant, and, and your, dad, your dad killed, killed Kennedy. Kennedy.
1: <laughs> and you say in the moment in your, in your macho spirit, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a tough Texan, Republican, hard guy. And you say to the president, you know, he, I forgot what he said exactly, but he, you know, he wagged his finger and he said things that sounded appropriately strong and, and stood up for his, his wife and his late father. And then five minutes later, when the political calculation changes, he's Trump's buddy. And that's yeah. to me, that's in some ways worse than what Paul Ryan is doing. But then on the other hand, just to, to, to go through the continuum, you have someone like Jeff Flake. And I had Jeff Flake on, the, on my program. And on the one hand, you say, well, Jeff Flake decides he's not running for office. So it, it doesn't t- maybe it doesn't take as much courage to stand up to the president and go to the floor of the Senate and say a bunch of things. And then, you know, the, the, the people who don't already like the president don't all rally to Jeff Flake's defense and don't all, you know, want to lift him up on their shoulders. What you hear a lot of liberals say who don't like the president is that talk is cheap. And what Jeff Flake is saying is, you know, is, is, is nice. You know, there's some nice alliteration in his speeches, but he still votes with the president, you know, 85% of the time or 90% of the time, and he's getting out of the fight. And that's nothing to laud. I, I don't agree with those people. I think, given how devastating Donald Trump has been and could be to various institutions that we care about that are not related to party, that we should welcome any voice that decides to depart from, you know, the the narrow-minded, blinded Paul Ryan, Ted Cruz uh, enabling of the president. And if you have a person like Jeff Flake, and I understand the limits, you know, and you know, I think there's some people who think, well, they're, they're only going to appreciate Jeff Flake if he all of a sudden sprouts wings and becomes you know an actual liberal Democrat and changes his right. views on all sorts of things, you know, that's not going to happen. But I think you know given that we're talking about things that are not just about you know, tax policy or you know, the, the size of government, but you're talking about things like decency, integrity, the separation of powers, the independence of law enforcement, um, the, the, the importance of the free press. Those are things that people on both sides of the aisle should care about, and any voice that acknowledges that and that supports those principles and ideals from within the party that Trump purports to belong to, I think
0: we should welcome. Yeah, know I, I totally agree there, and I think the most credible criticism of the president has come from you know the center right Republicans, the Never Trumpers, the the David Frums yes. of the world, the Charles Murrays, because you can't allege any partisanship in that case. It's just. A conversation about institutions and the importance of a fact based discussion and conflicts of interest and all the rest. I want to talk for a moment about I know you're not part of the Mueller investigation, but this is the sort of job you have done for many years. And you have this expertise in financial crime and Russian meddling in other societies. If you had to guess, what do you think is true? of Trump's connection to Russia financially? I mean, what do you think his tax returns would have shown?
1: (laughs) Like the other thing that is true of me, given the prior job I had, not only did I work on issues relating to Russian organized crime and money laundering and financial fraud, but I also developed a habit uh, born of that work of not speculating too too much, because it's impossible to know and look, I ask these, I ask these same questions, and when I do my side job as a legal analyst on CNN, I get asked these questions, and I'm I'm kind of loath to speculate too much. It, it it seems to be the case, based on what you said, that you can draw an inference that he has some financial interest in Russia, that may not have been fully disclosed. There were a lot of meetings, there were a lot of connections. I think the one of the sons, I think one of the sons bragged at one point things that they had in Russia. You know, yeah. the, the same is true in, in Turkey, but it's a slightly different context. Yeah. Uh And where there's a lot of uh business, and where you have people who don't always cross all the T's and dot all the i's, and people who don't lead with a great tone from the top, as we're seeing Donald Trump doing as President of the United States, and you know a, a culture that's being created in which cabinet secretaries you know decide to take private planes to go you know ninety miles to Philadelphia from Washington, and another decides to go first class because he doesn't like to mingle with regular people in coach, you know, all sorts of minor seeming, you know, ethical lapses occurring because a a particular culture has been created. Uh, And again, just continuing on the speculation. Well, you can
0: also add to that these crazy stories about how much self-enrichment has been going on in terms of the Secret Service paying rent in Trump Tower and the cost of traveling to Mar-a-Lago. He's basically spent Obama's two terms of security budget in like something like two months. This is a, ostensibly a billionaire who is extracting money from from the government for his own businesses, seemingly at every opportunity. Yeah, and, and when,
1: you know, and experience teaches you
0: and history teaches
1: that when you have organizations that are run in a particular way and where the leadership uh, creates a particular kind of culture that really doesn't care much about doing things by the book or the right way, uh, and and likes to engage in lack of transparency, uh, that's the place where, where prosecutors like to look because it's, it, it is often the case that that's where people do bad things. And when you're put under a microscope, uh, things can be found. And I, I think, you know, uh, speculating just a little bit, that, that the Mueller investigation is probably looking at all manner of financial issues and dealings that came across their radar screen that we don't know about, and they're complicated and they're difficult, and probably and part of the reason we don't know about them is because they've been hidden from the public. And I don't have no personal knowledge. I'm not in communication with anybody on the team, even though several of them are, are personal friends of mine, and nor will I have contact with them. But just you know, from from the hints you get, and and the way you know that investigations operate, and given the, you know the vast network of dealings and transactions and interdependency involving multiple countries and lots of different companies, uh, I would not be surprised at all if there was impropriety that crossed the line into criminal conduct that may be unearthed.
0: Is there any reason to think that the totality of Trump's financial dealings is not part of, or that any part of it is excluded from the investigation? Or, or can Mueller look into anything as a matter of, of his kind of legal permission?
1: I mean, he's got a, he's got a fairly broad mandate, but, he, but here's what people I think don't always understand. And there are critics of Mueller who say he's gone beyond the Russian investigation. But, but this is how it works. If if we take if we put it taken out of the context of the special counsel investigation and prosecution, if a prosecutor decides to take a look at uh, you know a reputed mobster, or starts to take a look uh, based on uh, you know credible reports and whistleblowing that a particular uh, CEO of a company is engaged in some kind of bad conduct, you know, it's cooking the books, is you know, it's ordering the CFO uh, to cook the books in a particular way. Then you know what happens? You you start to look at that issue and you start to Mm -hmm. interview people uh, when you become overt, but before that you, you know, you subpoena bank records, you look at phone records, and interesting things come across the radar screen when you do that. And you don't look away. In the same, you know, this the simplest way to describe it is people get taught in law school. If you have a search warrant to go into someone's home that's authorized by a court to look for, you know, a gun because you think there's an unlawfully possessed gun in the home and you come into the kitchen, and you see a kilo of cocaine on the table, you can arrest the guy for the kilo of cocaine. And there's a lot of plain view stuff that could be happening in the Mueller investigation. Mm. When, you're at, when you're looking at everything, and then you, you can't turn a blind eye to that. It doesn't mean that you know, they're on all sorts of detours and frolics and they're running far afield, but when it, co- when it comes in front of you, you have to take a look. And a lot of investigations that we did uh, when I was the United States attorney took various twists and turns because you started to realize, well, you know, maybe this thing that we happen to be looking at will not bear fruit and it 's not like we 're trying to find something so that we can justify the fact that we opened up an investigation, but in the course of looking at A, we found out evidence, discovered evidence of B, and then you pursue b and you know that 's the problem with with lots of companies and individuals who engage in shady business you know and I say this when I talk to folks. Uh, you know, on Wall Street and others about how they should think about conducting themselves. It it may not be that you're committing a crime, but if you're doing things that cause suspicion, people are going to take a look at you. I mean, it's like when the IRS, nobody likes to be audited by the IRS, but if you do something that raises a red flag and the IRS comes and takes a look, uh, it may be that that red flag was false. But now that they're looking, you know, you better hope that everything else is done in a kosher way.
0: What do you think of the public facing Dramatic events that we've noticed, like you know the the indictment of Flynn and his pleading guilty to some charge, lying to the FBI, and the you know, Papadopoulos as well. What, what what have been the moments that you think are giving Trump the the biggest headache, and what do you think they portend? I know I'm asking you to speculate yeah, yeah, yeah. No, into so, this black box, but so fl- what can you speculate? Well, the about?
1: one the one you haven't mentioned is the firing of Jim Comey, and I think that was. That was a highly significant inflection point in the whole thing. We can come back to that in a second. On the Flynn plea, a lot of people have been saying and have said that the fact that he pled guilty to a fairly minor offense, although I don't think you know a false statement to, to law enforcement is a minor offense, you know, a violation of eighteen USC thousand and one, and that that's all he pled guilty to is in the minds of some armchair prosecutors uh, a signal that he must have tremendously significant Incriminating evidence against you know Trump, Jared Kushner, you name it, uh, because otherwise he wouldn't have been let off so light. And I actually recorded a special co- podcast on this because I, I tended to disagree with those people who were so sure that that's what it means. And, mm. and what I think is, it could mean one of a number of things. It could mean, and this doesn't make the people who don't like Trump happy. It could mean that at the end of the day, notwithstanding all this reporting of Michael Flynn doing weird things at the behest of the turkish government and not registering properly and having to do that retro- retroactively uh that that's all he thought all muller thought was appropriate to charge flynn with and for various reasons technical legal factual uh ethical they thought you no, know, that's it and that's the end of the case against flynn uh I think that's one possibility and one, one that, that even the people who don't like Donald Trump or don't like Michael Flynn have to contend with. The other possibility is, I guess, what people have suggested, that he got a sweetheart deal and this must mean he's going to do all these things, um, all this testifying in the future. Um, I, I, don't, I don't know that I buy that. I think that at some point in the future, if Flynn's testimony is going to be used in a significant way to charge another person higher up in the food chain, an associate, or relative of Donald Trump, or as part of a referral of Donald Trump to the House of Representatives uh, himself, then if Michael Flynn was a participant in that conduct, in that misconduct, Michael Flynn will be required to plead guilty to those things because that's just how the way good prosecutors do it. It's better tactically and strategically. So it doesn't look like the witness you're going to put on the stand, who is now, by the way, an admitted convicted liar under 18 USC 1001, it, it also makes that person. Uh, look like they're accepting some responsibility for the conduct that he's trying to point the finger at with respect to other people. So, you know, I don't know if right. that's all they got. I don't think it was a sweetheart deal that's concluded. Uh, it's also possible, and this is highly unusual, and people think, you know, maybe I don't make a lot of sense when I suggest this possibility. But it may be that you know that the, the Mueller team is holding in abeyance this idea. So, if it's true that Michael Flynn has substantial evidence and can testify in a in an effective and helpful way against some other person that Bob Mueller is going to charge, then maybe at that time, there will be another proceeding where Michael Flynn will have to accept other responsibility. Uh, or it may be that, 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 you know, this gets complicated, right? The, that the, the decision tree does. That the Mueller team is not sure yet. Based on the evidence that has been given to them by Michael Flynn, they're not sure if any other human is going to be charged. They don't know if they have enough They don't know if they find Michael Flynn to be a a good enough witness. And in that circumstance, because this is speculation, in that circumstance, given the nature of this case and the extraordinary stakes, that at the center of all this is, is a sitting, duly elected president of the United States, the idea that on spec, you're going to give a certain kind of deal to Michael Flynn and have him plead guilty in a way that raises expectations as to further charges against other high-ranking people in the White House, that maybe is a bridge too far, and maybe they wanna to wait to cross that bridge until they come to it. Again, that's a spun out theory, just based on my experiences and, and, and having a sense of how you might wanna have this unfold in a way that's both fair, just, effective, and preserving of uh, you know, people's faith and confidence in the process, but I think that's a possibility.
0: It also, it doesn't close the door to any future sweetheart deal, right? I mean, Correct. He, right. Sure. I mean, I, I think what people find unusual is that part of the problem with
1: speculation on everything having to do with the Mueller investigation is that it's not a garden variety case. And so when, when people like me, or I think I have a lot of experience now, people need to take, listeners need to take everything that people like me and others say with a grain of salt, because I never investigated a president. Uh, and nobody mm-hmm. else is talking every day. You know, they have these people who come from the from the the era of Watergate. and Maybe they have a little bit more sort of perspective on what they're talking about. But no one has ever done an investigation like this ever. There's never been anything like this. And you know, I do think that you know a case is a case. No one's above the law. You follow all the rules. There are certain T's you cross, I's you dot. When you get a search warrant, when you surveil someone, when you get a you know wiretap authorization, all of that is true. I do think, however when you're talking about the, the, the rare circumstance of investigating the leader of the country, who by the way, the consensus of opinion is uh, that that person cannot be indicted criminally while sitting in office, that it may be mm-hmm. that, that I and others who are pundits who come on podcasts and go on TV don't know everything that they're talking about. And that there are considerations that the Mueller team uh, in good faith and in consonance with what, you know, America is supposed to be about and what, you know, the law is supposed to be about, uh, are taking into account things that are causing them to do things differently from how a garden variety United States attorney might in some random money laundering case in their district. That's just a caution I would give.
0: To. Right. Who else did you want to talk about here? I know you want to talk about the firing of Comey, but is Manafort relevant? And
1: Yeah, he can be. I mean, I, but I say the same, t- you know, about, you know, it, we'll see what Manafort does. Uh, You know, there's speculation, you know, that he has some things to say. One can never know. There there are two kinds of cooperators, right? They're they're the ones who, when you approach them, they sort of faint and cave immediately. And they can be used proactively to develop evidence when nobody knows they're a cooperator. And we've used that a lot of times. And then there are some people who say, you know what, I'm not going to cooperate with you." you. They get approached and they say, you know, go to hell, get away from me. And then you charge them. And then as the, you know, the days go by and the clock ticks, they realize they're in more of a jam than they, than they appreciated, and they cooperate then, and then they can provide historical information. So you know, who knows what's going to happen with Paul Manafort? I, you know, the reason I mentioned the Comey firing is, in some ways, that's, that's sort of like the big bang that created the universe that we're in, right? You know, and and it, also, it also portends other things, right? So when you, when you and others ask the question, what's going to happen here? Well, the ball is not only and there are multiple balls here, and there are multiple courts. So Bob Mueller has his mandate, and he's proceeding at pace and fairly swiftly, based on everything that I can see from an outside perspective. But Donald Trump has some things he can do too. And the you know two things he did tell you that nothing is off the table. One, he actually fired Jim Comey. I, I, I was astonished that that happened, because you know, we know in retrospect that his political ace strategist who's now on the outs, Steve Bannon, argued vehemently against it said it was the dumbest political move i think he's seen in in modern times. And a lot of people must have been arguing against it and Donald Trump is not a stupid person notwithstanding how everyone wants to infantilize him. He's smart, but he also becomes enraged and he also has these insecurities and he fired him anyway. The second thing he did was he flew in the face of all sorts of precedent and process uh and I think good practice by pardoning Joe Arpaio. so he has now fired somebody of tremendous prominence, who is a thorn in his side, and he has pardoned somebody who is his ally but who is a you know fairly villainous person to I think the majority of Americans. Why is that significant going forward it's significant going forward because Bob Mueller and Rod Rosenstein remain I think vulnerable to being fired because Donald Trump at, at some point doesn't care, and people like Michael Flynn and others. I think, remain subject to being pardoned. And all of those things can happen. And so when people say, you know, Mm -hmm. it's a bridge too far, you would never do it, people are safe, the the number of stories we have now heard about moments where Donald Trump wanted to fire Rod Rosenstein or Jeff Sessions or other people is kind of astounding. And I bet we don't even know all the stories. Maybe not everybody is leaking 10 times a day, like some of them are. That means that Donald Trump, when cornered, or when, when he thinks he's in trouble, Or when he becomes enraged about issues relating to the Russia investigation, I think is actually capable of anything. So, when we try to predict what's going to happen in the future, we need to think about what Bob Mueller is doing with his head down quietly, but also the moves that Donald that Donald Trump can engage in.
0: What do you think would happen if he did just that? He fires Bob Mueller on a Tuesday and pardons Flynn on a Wednesday. What happens on Thursday?
1: A very long podcast by me. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Look,
1: you know, uh, there's a lot. There's a lot of Talk right and i think I think we can predict two things on the democratic side, you know a, a universe of people who don't like Trump to begin with and are opposed to him to begin with will say, "Take to the streets, and I think it'll be a big problem. I think there'll be a huge uproar, and people will utter without knowing the meaning of it, you know this is a constitutional crisis, and there'll be a lot of signs in the street, and I think that would be appropriate if he engages in that kind of activity, but the real question is going to be. What conduct are we going to see from the people that you and I were speaking about earlier, the Paul Ryans of the world and the Ted Cruz's of the world? Um, now, some of those people talk a, a decent game uh, and have said things about Bob Mueller that are positive and say, you "No, know, he should continue his investigation. Lindsey Graham has said things like that as well. But you know, when push comes to shove, if he fires Bob Mueller and his approval ratings don't tank further, I, I worry that maybe there are people on the other side of the aisle, even though I think this is not a partisan issue, and and does deal a very substantial blow to the rule of law, a very substantial blow to the rule of law, that some people will go along with it. I mean, I really, I really, mm-hmm. I worry about that.
0: If he fired Bob Mueller, the investigation goes away, or Mueller's subordinate is now running the investigation?
1: Well, so that's an interesting question. I, I think if, he, if someone fires Mueller, then you know, Mueller has the authority, you know, there was not a team that was appointed. It was Mueller who was given the authorization to conduct this investigation. And I think if you cut off the head, then the body goes too. But then then there are two other possibilities. And this is where I think, uh, you know, further answer to your earlier question, where I think congressional courage and spine will matter because Congress could go right into session and enact some statute on a veto-proof majority that creates essentially what we got rid of some time ago, some, some version of an independent counsel. And I, I think can, can name Bob Mueller to it. Uh, and then the president, if it's a veto-proof majority, would have no choice but to now have, you know, a further emboldened more, you know, prosecutor and a more polarized country uh, and someone who has more reason to believe that Donald Trump had something to hide. I don't know if that will happen. Uh, I have no idea if that will happen. One of the other things is, you know, it will, it'll be a big dramatic show. No, but it does look like, uh, I think from a lot of people's perspectives, that the Democrats will take back the House. And then they have a very substantial responsibility to figure out what they're going to do. And there are people in the House right now, and there are conservatives right now, who think that based on what is publicly known about Donald Trump's conduct, that he should be impeached. Um, there are also people who are, you know, political in nature, who think he should be impeached, but don't think the, Demo- don't think the Democrats should be talking about it, don't think they should be pursuing it because they worry about what happened uh, you know back in 1998 and 1999 then there was overreaching by the Republican House so th- the problem with all of this is from at least my perspective is is a lot of what's going to happen is going to depend on politics is going to depend on you know uh, personal power calculations is going to depend on people's putting their fingers in the wind when you know the way the way the way I was brought up and learned how to deal with issues of criminality and transgressions of the law is doing it in a fully apolitical way. but you know, mm. the system we have allows for that kind of a process. And you know maybe the founders were very smart in this, that if you have potential criminal conduct by the President of the United States, uh, because it's such a high position, it should be dealt with in, in a political forum, and God knows how that's going to be handled and if it's going to be handled in a way. Uh, that is that is angry and overreaching, or if it's going to be handled in a way that's sort of sober, sad, responsible, and, um, and bipartisan? I, I just don't know.
0: I mean, wh- I mean what's your guess? <laughs> Again, I'm, I'm so far outside the inside here in terms of understanding the politics. I'm continually astonished at the lack of scruple and principle you see from Republicans who are falling into line behind him, no matter how ugly his behavior. And it's just, the whole thing is truly mystifying to me. I just don't understand, because we're dealing with a situation where Trump is advertised as one of the most persuasive and successfully manipulative people to ever come along. So we we have millions of people who are something like 30% of America. For whom he can do no wrong. I mean, I think it really is. There's very little hyperbole in his statement that he could walk into Times Square and shoot someone and wouldn't lose a single vote. I mean, that that is almost true. Yeah, it is. <laughs> it is. Yeah, and yet I find him to be the least persuasive, you know, most transparently fraudulent person I can think of in public life. And I mean, this is true. This predates his run for the presidency by more than a decade. I mean, he's always appeared to me to be just a con artist and a crackpot, and somebody who, you know, wasn't nearly as wealthy as he was pretending to be, obviously not informed about 99% of the things you'd want to be informed about to hold this office. We have a a reality TV star running the country. And what's astonishing is his lying is so brazen, there's not even a pretense of it being calculated to deceive, right? Like his lies don't function the way normal lies do. And this is what has been so destructive of our public conversation. It's not like we have a president who tells lies that are so ingenious that they pass as truths. No, we have a president who tells lies that are obviously false and forces his surrogates and his opponents and everyone to just eat them.
1: Yeah, there's there's this great scene from Seinfeld that has made the rounds, I think, for the last number of months, uh, that sort of crystallizes this point. And because one of the questions is, what does Donald Trump really think in his mind when he utters these things? And it's a scene in which, I think George Costanza says to Jerry Seinfeld, just remember one thing, if you believe it, it's not a lie. And I don't know, if, mm. I don't, look, yeah. Donald Trump says all these things. I mean, do, do you think Donald Trump, in every instance where he says things that are nonsense, doesn't believe them. If, you know it, The twists and turns of his language and his rhetoric in interviews and with the press and even in depositions be- long before he became president indicated, indicated a very wacky way of thinking about what is a fact and what is not a fact. Not to excuse him in mm. any way.
0: I agree with you. I agree with you. With everything you said. I think the relevant concept here is, has been very helpfully defined by the philosopher Harry Frankfurt in his book on bullshit. He actually wrote a A very straight philosophical essay on the concept of bullshit. And the difference between a bullshitter and a liar is that a liar is actually having to reality test his utterances in an effort to get them to pass as truths. He understands the logical and empirical expectations of his audience, and he's trying to fit his lies carefully into the spaces they need to fit in order to have them pass as truths. Whereas a bullshitter, is not spending any cognitive overhead trying to remember what's true or anticipate the logical expectations of his audience. He's just talking. There's no reality testing going on. He likes the sound of his own voice. He knows the message he wants to get across. And he's just confabulating and leaving the world to just react in his wake. And it is the most mystifying thing I have ever seen in my life, honestly. I mean, I don't know what I would rank as a possible second that this has been this successful. Right, so what's
1: mystifying to you is not that there there's a human being that has power who is attempting that, you know, charade. What's mystifying is that it is successful and there are a substantial number, you know, numbering the tens and tens of millions who either buy it
0: or don't buy it and don't care. I honestly don't know why this guy isn't homeless with the exact <laughs> same head of hair begging for change. I mean, this is my... Sense that it says very little about his talents, and it says a lot about a, a kind of pathology in our society around fame and wealth, or the perception of wealth. Well, can
1: and I, can the I, can fact I suggest, that he could
0: leverage this. Yeah, but can I suggest so, something else? And, and I think I agree with all that,
1: but I, I think D- Donald Trump tapped into something, right? And there are people who are forgiving him or overlooking it. And I, you know, I I, I talk to people from time to time. In passing, you know, in the store, or you know, you you talk to someone who's driving the cab, and they will, and you and you wouldn't think based on the demographic that they would much like Donald Trump, and many of them don't. But every once in a while, someone says something that you know rings true, uh, whether we like it or not. You know, Donald Trump, I like to say Donald Trump was right about a few things. You know, there is a swamp, there are a lot of forgotten people, the system is rigged. Those are three principles. Observations. I mean, I don't think he's addressing them properly, and I think he's, um, to, to borrow the phrase we've been using a lot, you know, full of shit, is bullshit. But, you know, that resonates with people. And there are a lot of folks in the country who are were sick and tired of a different kind of bullshit, right? The bullshit that comes out of the mouths of these, you know, well-dressed, um, you know, well-coiffed politicians who just speak nonsense, and they don't say anything. They're never interesting. Um, they say they're going to help you, and they're 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 in Washington their own pockets too. They don't solve any problem. They don't balance any budget. They don't bring home any bacon. And people are sick of it. And you know, just the status quo. And I don't I don't blame those people for being sick of that. Um, I, I think I think the better response is to have a candidate who, uh, you know, exudes authenticity and also truthfulness. And also, you know, some kind of modesty, humility, and and care and empathy for people, and has a pragmatic sense. You know, I, that's the better alternative. But you know what? In some universes, it's better to have a guy who speaks his mind and pisses everyone off, um, and doesn't look like the average politician who's blow dried and says the same nonsense every day. And nothing changes, and a switch has gone off with some people. Like you know what? That guy's my guy, because he may not be truthful. And this is a weird phrase, and I'm. I'm sure there there are books that I haven't read on this that you can quote back to me, but you know, he may not be truthful, but he's
0: authentic, um, and that's how he gets away with it. Again, I, I'm not even focusing narrowly on the fact that he is president. Another huge variable there is how bad a candidate Hillary Clinton was, and all of the grievances that that are legitimate that you just mentioned that Trump managed to pander to. But the the thing that is astonishing is that. So many people who could argue that Trump was the better choice given the option and given their concerns still find absolutely nothing to criticize in his behavior. He is bulletproof in this respect with his core fans, and it makes no sense. I mean, there's a kind of nihilism, and it's like as though it's perfectly fine to have a president tweeting threats of nuclear war. (laughs) Like, why isn't that a good thing? Yeah. Whenever I, you know, worry out loud about things like this, I'm attacked by Trumpkins as just being naive. He's just trolling, right? This is the new way you, you roll as president of the United States. You just troll people on yeah. Twitter. They, they say, look, there are a lot of ways in which it's interesting.
1: If it wasn't so serious, it would just be sort of an interesting, you know, sideshow, seeing how people who m- maybe once had intelligence and integrity of their own try to explain absurd things that come out of the mouth of the president. And among them are, right, you know, don't take him literally, or he was joking. The president actually doesn't joke that much. No, But, but, but even they feel the need at some, you know, on occasion to give some explanation uh, to, I suppose, I don't know, the elites or others as to why it's okay that the president said what he said. Look, and there are a lot of people, you know, I, I'm on social media too. And I actually follow a lot, you know, a number of people who are very, very, very supportive of Donald Trump uh and remain so and I, I and i i look at the explanations that they give and there's a certain kind of glee that people who hate traditional politicians get when people speak like you and i sometimes speak and who get exercised over a lie told by trump or you know um a transgression of some tradition or some point of etiquette uh mm-hmm. there's there's a glee on the part of some people like look look at look at those people getting so upset cuz now we finally have a guy who calls it like it is and it's not like everyone else i mean there's I guess there's some value depending on how fed up people have become in having you know their their savior be somebody who is different you know sometimes difference is is a virtue in and of itself um, and mm-hmm. I don't think it overcomes all the other uh, failings and vices, but you know that that's that's one way of looking at it i think
0: the th- thing is you could have you could connect all those dots you could have A totally unconventional and uncorruptible person in the the office, somebody who's not beholden to special interests, somebody who can call bullshit on everything that is worth knocking over in Washington. Yes. But that person could actually be honest, that person could actually be informed, that person could actually be competent and not deranged by his own narcissism. The fact that those added variables are no, of no concern to his supporters, Although, you know, that's what's so A person so shocking. like that
1: that you have described that, that sounds great, and I would love to see such a person. But part of the reason Trump is not destroyed every time some crazy thing happens, I mean, you know, people credibly say, what would have happened to the kind of person you're talking you know, an honest, upstanding person, um, or someone who presented themselves that way? But I guess your hypothetical, as I'm saying it aloud, doesn't allow for my example. You know, the reason why Donald Trump doesn't even have it on the, it's not even on the first page of the front page of the paper, that his lawyer says he personally paid $130,000 to a porn star on the eve of the election with whom Donald Trump had an affair after he had just had a child with Melania, and that's not a big deal, is because, because Trump
0: has defined deviancy down, because of the whole rest of his personality, yeah. is, it's what you see is what you get. I've said this several times in the podcast that if he were one tenth as bad, he would seem worse. He's just a fire hose of indiscretion, and you can't even pay attention right. but, but, to, to the last scandal because yes. it's being replaced by a new one two hours yes, later. But the other, but the corollary to that, I
1: think, is is he is the way he is, and he does not present himself as a as a, uh, a fountain of virtue, right? And a lot of and a lot of politicians do, you know, you know when people say imagine what would happen if Barack Obama had, you know, this thing happened to him or that thing happened to him. They're right that his presidency would crumble, but it wouldn't crumble, but, but they're not, they don't, they don't come to the American people as equals in their image. Barack Obama came forward, and I think he was an upright, you know, good family person, has integrity. Uh, at least, I don't see any evidence to the contrary. But he also presented himself as a kind of upstanding public figure. And so, you know, any chink in that armor would have been far more devastating to him than, you know, much, much larger scandals have been for Trump because of the way he's presented himself. You know, look, a smaller version of that is Bill Clinton. And I don't think Bill Clinton ever presented himself as, as some kind of paragon of virtue either. And, and so in some ways, the hypocrisy that people don't like is lessened with someone like Donald Trump mm-hmm. than, it, than it might be with somebody who is the ideal, you know, platonic ideal that you're talking about. Upstanding, virtuous, uh, has the public's interest at heart, et cetera, et cetera,
0: et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Preet, I know your time is, has elapsed here. It's really been great to talk to you about this.
1: Yeah, this is great fun. Thank you, Sam. Sam.
0: Thanks for having me on.